You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to Pharmacy Talk with IBM Watson Health, where we will explore everything surrounding the future of pharmacy, from the use of data, AI, and evidence to drug shortages and even careers. Demystifying the use of artificial intelligence in pharmacy was a subject that we kicked off in partnership with IBM Watson Health, and we're continuing this series today. Today's podcast is about providing better care and enhanced decision-making with evidence and artificial intelligence. And obviously, this is the Pharmacy Podcast Nation, and we're talking with many of uh, the providers out there. We talked with three amazing pharmacists last time. I have some uh, guests and speakers that are going to be part of this panel discussion today. Hello, my name is Alan Ehrlich, and I'm happy to be part of this uh, conversation today. My role as executive editor for Dynamed involves a lot of the interface between clinical information and technology and uh, artificial intelligence being part of that type of technology that we utilize in some of the work that I do. I'm also a practicing uh, physician. I work as part of a multi-specialty group practice, and I have uh, experience with artificial intelligence in the clinical setting, uh, particularly in its use through the EHR, but I'm familiar with Uh, a number of other applications as well as we'll get into a little bit later in the conversation. So happy to be here and uh, look forward to engaging with my co-panelists. Alan, thank you for that. Uh, Very much appreciate that. We'd like to hear from Eileen. Eileen, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. My name is Eileen Yoshida and I'm the Deputy Editor for Medications and Clinical Informatics here at EBSCO Clinical Decisions. And my primary role is to improve the medication content and functionality within our products with a particular focus on Dynamed and Micromedics with Watson. I am a pharmacist by training and practiced in the hospital arena for let's say 10 plus years, both in the community hospital space as well as in academic medical centers as a clinical pharmacist, as well as a drug information specialist. I ended up going back to school and got an MBA and worked for a large healthcare consulting firm. And I worked on a variety of projects, including helping a number of hospitals and health systems implement electronic health records with a particular focus on the medication workflow. And finally, prior to joining Clinical Decisions, I was a manager of a team of clinical knowledge engineers and informaticians in the clinical informatics group at the Mass General Brigham here in Boston. And it was there I developed my clinical informatics skills and expertise, specifically in CDS and knowledge management. And I'm happy to be here today and to share some of my thoughts with you. Thank you, Eileen. We're also pleased to have Dr. Rick Francis, a part of our panel today. Rick, welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast Nation. Great. Thanks, Todd. And, uh, you know, like Eileen said, thanks for having us as part of this uh, great discussion. So I'm an internist by training. I'm currently the, I just got promoted today from associate chief health officer to deputy 
chief health officer. I'll take the title. I don't know if it means anything, but I'm also a client consultant at IBM uh, Watson Health, and I've been in that role for about seven years. Uh, what, what I really enjoy is part of my role now is providing clinical support for client organizations, but also kind of being the voice of clinicians during development of new solutions. And, and particularly enjoy leveraging technology to solve actual problems as opposed to the shiny new thing. So I've got 25 years experience in health information technology. It kind of overlaps with 20 years of clinical experience. And I am one of those masochists that did hospital and ambulatory at the same time. Uh, I'm uh, trained as an internist and board certified. Again, looking forward to a great discussion today. Rick, I like how you opened up with real world medicine usage of artificial intelligence and where artificial intelligence will continue to be leveraged in filling in gaps of taking one component of data, merging it with another and allowing an algorithm to come up with accelerated decisions that can be placed in the hands of our clinicians, of our pharmacists, of our physicians and our, um, and our nurse practitioners. So I'm going to come back to you first, Rick. Um, what are some examples you are seeing in AI being introduced into healthcare today and where or how is it being leveraged successfully? Yeah, great. Well, thanks for that opportunity. Um, and, and I just wanted to start it off. While it is a little bit of early days with AI, I think if you're familiar with the Gartner hype cycle, we're definitely out of the trough of despair. Um, and, and I think there's some things that AI does extremely well. There's some things that it's, it's getting better at. But in particular, I think it does very well with images. So you see a lot of radi radiology applications. Uh, it does a, a super job there. And, and I wanted to make the point that the idea is not to replace radiologists. The idea is to tee up clinical information and, and make it better for someone and easier for someone. And I think that's going to be a recurrent theme. Uh, I saw a, a solution last week that was real interesting along AI and imaging. It was a retina scan. Just so someone could take a picture in a primary care office and the photograph of the patient's retina could be analyzed by AI. And of course, what you're looking for is diabetic retinopathy. Uh, so that's helpful. Uh, another example people forget is ECG readings. And, and that's been for decades now. And I was talking to a... Uh, cardiologist friend of mine last week, he's in a large car cardiology group, and they feel that if you go against the ECG reading, the machine reading, you better have a good reason because it's, it's gotten that accurate. Um, a, another area just to touch on is uh, telemedicine and, and because it's part of the new normal. And I think there's a silver lining with COVID in a, in a variety of ways. And one of them is telemedicine, which got very little use before because there was no reimbursement. But now it's here and you go, wait a minute, that's not AI and you're right. But on the other hand, I think if you combine the telemedicine with technology such as like, I've got an Apple smartwatch, it doesn't do a real EKG, it's like a lead three rhythm strip, but it's pretty good. Um, you know, glucose monitoring, O2 sats. And uh, the whole idea with this is you could use AI and risk stratification. And I think you'll hear that as kind of a common theme throughout the the podcast. And, you know, one other little thing I thought was cool was accelerometer. So, you know, you're doing telemedicine on one of your patients, they had a hip replacement surgery, and you're wondering how much are they getting around? Well, the accelerometer will tell you. Um, 
The uh, the last thing I'd like just to touch on a little bit is chatbots, uh, because there's different flavors of AI. So that touches on the natural language processing flavor, and we we've all had our experience with that. But I think the future is bright for chatbots. Alan, with your background, there's definitely things that you've experienced yourself. Um, where artificial intelligence is being leveraged successfully today. Can you expand upon that? Sure. And, uh, you know, I'll highlight a couple of things uh, taking off of what Rick had said. So, first of all, you know, when you're talking about uh, the use um, of artificial intelligence in reading mammograms, another image where it has found a use is in scanning pap smears to try and identify the high risk. Uh, specimens that the pathologist would look at more carefully. Uh, in the pharmacy world, there, uh, the drug-drug interactions is an area that's ripe for AI to augment. Because one of the challenges with drug-drug interactions is where you set the threshold for uh, too much alert or not enough alerting. And machine learning can be a tool to help with that. Rick had mentioned about ECGs and the smartwatches. So the smartwatches are one of the things that has been done with that has been a study looking at can we detect asymptomatic atrial fibrillation in people wearing smartwatches and then have them come in and maybe get a halter monitor and see if we can identify people and get them appropriate therapy if need be. How we deal with that kind of data is something that we're still studying because someone who presents because their smartwatch picked up AFib is a different type of person than someone who came in to an urgent care who was symptomatic. Interestingly, for people who have episodic uh, uh, arrhythmias or palpitations or things like that, getting away from the smartwatch itself, there are now applications to be used with your smartphone. You get this uh, sensor and you can put two fingers of each hand on it. There's no gel or wires and it will uh, take a tracing, and you can get a number, I think a number of limb leads off of this, depending upon how you position it. And this is something that I think uh, has a lot of uh, potential in the future. We all know the frustration when uh, a patient comes in and that's palpitations, but they're perfectly fine now. And so now AI uh, it will not only allow you to get that ECG, but it will give an interpretation right there at that time. And, you know, there's really no limit to where this can go. There's also ultrasound uh, for uh, cardiac ultrasound echoes, where the smartphone gets hooked up to a transducer and it works as a portable ultrasound. And they're developing machine learning algorithms in order to interpret that. So even if you don't have someone who's experienced in reading echoes, somebody could uh, use their smartphone with a transducer, do the echo, and then the smartphone will ultimately give you an interpretation uh, that you can then make decisions off of. So there's a lot of potential. Some of this is already in place. Some of this is uh, still uh, in the early stages, but it, it's certainly widespread uh, throughout uh, clinical medicine right now. Thanks for that, Alan. I think of specialty pharmacy and how the treatments are quite expensive as well as some of the patients are, are quite fragile and how they could be taking readings along the beginnings of these treatments 
could provide uh, data back to the, the pharmacy patient team as well as the primary care and specialist um, physician that was collecting this information within the EHR. Eileen, where do you see artificial intelligence currently um, within clinical practice and, and where's it going next? So Alan and Rick did a great job giving us some current examples of how AI is being used in healthcare today and maybe tomorrow too. So instead of trying to get my crystal ball out and trying to predict the next greatest thing, I thought I would comment on some trends that are occurring right now that will shape which applications will take off and how they might be developed. The first trend I'm seeing is more and more provider organizations are partnering with other provider organizations to work on the same AI solution. And this is an approach that addresses a number of issues in developing robust AI solutions. We know that in order to teach the machine, we have to have access to a lot of data and a lot of different types of data. And we might not have all that information or enough of that information within our own four walls. So when you partner with other organizations, you're going to get access to a larger and potentially more diverse selection of patients. This approach can also perhaps mitigate some of the privacy and security issues that exist around sharing patient data. So under this model, organizations don't necessarily have to share their data directly with each other. They can test the algorithms on their own data, but then share the results of their findings with their partner organizations. The second trend I'm seeing is that provider organizations are partnering with AI companies to develop AI solutions because they realize they need a robust data infrastructure as well as specialized expertise to do AI. And again, not all provider organizations can do that in-house. You need strong data management technology and underlying platform to support all those transactions and analytics that need to be performed. For example, you're taking in the disparate data sources, going to be doing a lot of data cleansing to normalize the data. And for that, you'll need an army of data scientists, engineers, modelers, informaticians. And again, not every provider organization can provide those resources on their own. And then the third and final trend that I wanted to talk about is the call to action to improve transparency into AI solutions. We've learned the hard way multiple times over that we really need to be sure that any solution that we adopt is safe and effective and is fair to people of different race, gender, and geography. Right now, there's a certain amount of skepticism or mistrust in AI for these exact reasons. We need to be sure that whatever solution we're using, that it's being clinically validated, and that's where clinicians can share their expertise. The solution should be validated by an external second party, meaning by people who didn't develop the original solution, so we can make sure that the results can be replicated 
in another set of data or patient population. But in order to do that, there needs to be public disclosure or more transparency about the AI solution, making sure that whatever test results were done internally at the original organization are made public before and after the solution is released so that potential customers know how the algorithms were trained and validated. They need to understand what patient population the solution was originally tested on and what exactly is the logic behind the algorithms that are computing a recommendation. People are thinking really hard about this and how we can come up with an acceptable and universal approach to evaluate proprietary algorithms that are easy to adopt so that we can help our patients and ultimately to deliver better care to them. Alan, Eileen's bringing up some really good points about the people on the team to assure that this data is interconnected. And the first thing I think of, especially when I entered pharmacy um, in the institutional technology space for long-term care pharmacies was integration. So what do you, what do you think the biggest challenges are right now? What are you seeing with integrating artificial intelligence into healthcare and how clinicians can become more involved in the process? There are several challenges with uh, integrating AI into healthcare. First, there's always this reluctance to change, and that's especially true among older clinicians. For them, uh, much of what they think about is, what's the learning curve? How much energy and effort do I have to put in to learning this new technology? And how much better is this new technology compared to what it's trying to replace? And so what happens is, if there is a lot of effort for not a lot of gain, there'll be a lot of resistance, people will find workarounds and the expected benefits may not materialize. And part of the reason for this is that a lot of AI applications and other technology are developed without enough clinical input. And this often leads to frustration by the end user. I'll give you an example. Uh, many clinicians experience uh, with their electronic health records. So I'm not gonna mention any by name, I'm not here to bash anybody, but in the one that we use in my office, you have to enter orders in a way that is not how most clinicians would uh, do it if they were using paper and pen. It's uh, the, the way that the orders have to be entered were designed by people who are not clinical. And this leads to frustrations. Um, and at times uh, clinicians will do things that may not be the right way of doing it just because they have to do something quickly and move on. This comes up in things like coding, where you know part of the purpose of coding is not just to get reimbursement, but to have a system that tracks the, you know, what has happened to the patients in various healthcare settings and which diagnosis you choose. There's a lot of flexibility around that. And so people will often default to what is the easiest thing for them to do in order to get on to the next process. This is especially true when you have things where if you put in a certain code, you're blocked from going further. The way to avoid this really, in my opinion, is to have clinicians more involved in the design of AI and implementation from the very beginning. Now, that's easy to say, but this leads to a couple challenges with 
uh, this idea in my experience. The first is organizations have to understand that clinical input is essential to successful adop adoption of new technology. And that requires bringing clinical people up from their clinical activities in order to be able to help with the work on the AI. The second problem is that software teams often prefer to work on their own and then present a fully developed model for clinical feedback. At that point, many key decisions have already been made and it can be difficult to get the software team to do major revisions. So getting software engineers to want to work with clinical people early on has to be something that the organization is committed to or very often it will not happen and you won't get the results you're hoping for. You've made some great points. I think of that 30 minute, 40 minute window that a physician has to meet with their patient and how much information they have at their fingertips, which sounds like a good thing, but in sometimes it can be a challenge. And I'm wondering, Eileen, how does this become a, a challenge? How do you prioritize the information that you're receiving? So we all have our little tricks and favorite trusted information sources, but the tr truth is it's really tough and maybe even impossible to keep up with all the new medical knowledge that is coming out every day. You can look at different estimates. They say that back in the 1950s that the doubling time of medical knowledge was 50 years. Fast forward, they're saying now that it's 73 days. There's no way that any one of us can keep up with all this new information. On top of that, an additional challenge is how do you discern conclusions from poorly designed trials or even fake news from well-designed or evidence-based information? So while we each have our favorite sources of information, we often want to go several levels deeper and really be able to look at the evidence and look at not just maybe one piece of evidence, but the ecosystem of evidence on a topic that has been reviewed and critically appraised so we can come up with an assessment of what's most appropriate for that patient in front of us. And that is something that is core to Dynamed with Micromedics and Watson. We're always thinking about what do clinicians at the point of care need to know so that they are making the most informed decisions for their patients. So Rick, what about the tools that you're finding most valuable that you're leveraging so that you feel you're making good treatment care decisions within this whole process of everything that we've talked about to this point? I, I think Alan and Eileen can talk about some specific tools that are incredibly useful and, and to add on to what Eileen said about it, it's just overwhelming to keep up with the data. And so there, there's, I'll, I'll, I don't want to steal their thunder, but there's some excellent tools for that. But one thing I'd like to emphasize is whichever tool you use, it has to be integrated into the workflow. And, and if you think about EHR as a source of truth, and so whatever you choose, it has to be integrated into that. So technology like single sign-on is essential. And, um, you know, for instance, I saw uh, a prototype and, and it wasn't that hard to develop. Of, and again, this all comes back to risk, risk stratification. But it was, imagine, you know, and, and Alan can speak to this as you're a family practitioner, you're, you're seeing 40 patients a day. 
and nobody has just one problem. They all have at least two or three. And in the middle of all that, you're they come in for other things. And how do I identify somebody at risk for prediabetes? And so the technology I saw, it would pop up within the EHR and it would say this person, it would be low, medium, high risk for you know, prediabetes or diabetes, whichever the case would be. And then you could drill down to it. But it, it, it's, it's actionable. I can click on things and go order a hemoglobin A1C. It's integrated into my workflow and it's pertinent. So I think those are really a, a key thing. The other thing is time. Whatever it is, it, it, it's got to be time sensitive. If you're seeing 40 patients a day and you add one minute to each visit, it's now 40 extra minutes a day. Uh, but those are just some of the things. And I think Alan could probably share uh, some insights on this with regards to ACO, because I, I think it's it's really important to have the quality metrics and, uh, you know, have the nice financial picture as well, too. So, sure, I'd be happy to jump in with uh, some comments on that. Um, where I uh, practice, we, we have uh, alerts coming out of the EHR that remind clinicians of opportunities for things like preventative care, such as cancer screening or immunizations. And this, this is very good because it does two things. One, it improves the quality of care that the uh, patients are receiving. Often you'll get an opportunity for that type of intervention when someone's coming in for something else. They come in for hypertension follow-up or they come in because their blood sugar is elevated and they may be overdue for mammography or something like that. And so getting that trigger is a way of helping to make sure that you aren't just focused on one narrow slice of the patient, but you're keeping the bigger picture in mind. And you know, that also comes back from a reimbursement perspective because there's a lot of pay for performance measures out there. And the EHR is focused on making sure that those, uh, those items which both benefit the patient and benefit the organization are clearly front and center for clinicians. Similarly, there's HCC, which is, stands for hierarchical condition coding, and making sure that those visits are getting billed properly so that patients who have uh, more complex care are being recognized. And there is a uh, compensation benefit to the organization for doing that, but it also is a trigger. Many organizations will have teams that are designed to help more complex patients manage their healthcare and getting that HCC coding right is part of that process. So I do think, you know, along the lines of what you're saying, Rick, these things are completely part of the workflow. They don't take extra time. And they, you know, as long as they are aligned with what the clinicians think is good care, then all is well. Um, if they're viewed as something that is done as an add-on, it takes more time and it's being done just to game the system, then there'll be less buy-in from the clinical staff. So I'm also wondering, you know, how to ensure that artificial intelligence is accurate for the specific provider, the medical field in and of itself. And like, I'm thinking, so how do you determine what is artificial intelligence good at and what it's not good at, at least at this time? Rick, can you kind of uh, address that? Sure, I, I'd love to. And I, I wanted to preface it was I, I come from a family of engineers. I'm not disparaging engineers. I like working with them, especially architects. 
Um, but when you get into AI, uh, in probably any solution you see today, there's going to be the moniker, and it's powered by AI. And, and how do you evaluate that? And if you if you start asking questions, well, is it supervised or unsupervised learning? Did you use Python to code it? And it goes on and on and on and on. And it gets so confusing because how do you make sense of that? And then uh, from uh, Eileen and Alan's neck of the woods is, is one of my favorite authors, David Bates. And uh, David and et al. wrote an article called AI-enabled trust and value checklist. And I thought his approach is a great way to answer your question, uh, which was, it's just a series of questions. So when you're confronted with, is this solution any good? Is this AI good? How do I evaluate it? You just start off and then I won't read all of them, but it was just basically, first of all, is it better than status quo? You know, what's the clinical value? How does it fit into my workflow? What, what do I see at the point of care? How accurate is it? Um, you know, what was the training data source and on and on, you know, and, and then probably a very important one is what does it do when it's trained on data at my hospital? How does it still work? So I thought that was a great approach because if you jump down the, uh, the, the rabbit hole with an engineer on AI, I, I, that's, that's a pretty deep hole. So that's my approach on it. Eileen, what are the greatest barriers to leveraging CDS with AI? Uh, how how are you how are you coming up with the strategies to get past those barriers and leveraging AI? There are several barriers to adoption of AI in healthcare, and Alan touched on one of those barriers: the lack of clinical engagement and how having a multidisciplinary team that includes a clinician from day one is critical to ensure that the solution that's being developed makes sense clinically and is something that clinicians will actually use. But another barrier that I like to talk about is the work that needs to be done to the data that will ultimately be used to train and validate the models. You will likely be pooling data from disparate sources that probably don't have the same underlying data model, or they might not even have a data model. And so there needs to be a lot of effort looking at the information that you're trying to pull together into this one big pot. You really do need to understand what you're looking at. You need to make sure that the data is expressed the same way. And there's a lot of work that needs to go in to cleansing the data, getting rid of duplicates, maybe trying to fill in missing data. People forget or maybe just underestimate the work it takes to normalize and harmonize the data so that when you go to run your algorithms on it, it's as clean as it can be, or at least you're aware of some of the potential limitations that are inherent within your data source. Another issue that people are trying to address is ensuring the data is diverse and represents the population that you're targeting with your solution. Finally, once you're confident that you have a validated solution, you should set up a continuous monitoring plan. Is your solution still providing recommendations that make sense? Does it have an update process? Is it current with the newest evidence and recommendations? Thank you, Eileen, for going through that because nothing's perfect. It's always being improved. Um, Rick, I'm thinking 
with what you said previously, and, and just to follow up, how do you remove the biases that come from artificial intelligence? This reminds me of, of the, art, the artificial intelligence uh, talking with uh, a home care uh, bound or homebound uh, patient, maybe through one of the, the voice applications, for example. But how does privacy and security play into AI and clinical decision support? And I think it, it plays a big role. And, and I think I wanted to touch on something that Eileen mentioned earlier was about health inequities play a role in that as well. And, and one of the things I, I'd like to mention on this call is that the algorithms, if there's inherent uh, health inequities and bias in the system, guess what? You know, your algorithms are going to have it as well. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I'm quoting a lot of articles from a community hospital kind of guy, but uh, there's an article in the JAMA Open Network, and one of my friends, Irene Dankamolin, is one of the co-authors, and they looked at comparison of methods to reduce bias from clinical prediction models of postpartum depression, and it, it was really fascinating. So uh, they had 7 million women in, in a lot of states, obviously, it was a multi-state study, and they found that the uh, white patients were twice as likely to be diagnosed or you know, predicted as having postpartum depression compared to black patients. And they looked at various algorithms and there was an inherent bias. And it was also interesting if you removed race from the algorithm, it still did that, it still didn't you know, predict as it should. And, and the, the important part here, if, if you're not predicting not identifying, and once again, we'll come back to risk stratification, and then you're not treating, and then you get disparate health outcomes. So I, I don't know if I have the answer. That paper doesn't have the answer, but I think the first part of getting to the answer is recognizing there's an issue. Uh, and so I think, you know, you need to be testing these algorithms. So Eileen, how, how can clinicians get involved in artificial intelligence projects and and help to improve uh, the usage of AI? I think they just have to raise their hand. As Ellen has mentioned, all clinicians, pharmacists, physicians, nurses, we are uniquely qualified to be key contributors and domain experts to advance AI within our organizations. We have the opportunity to design, implement, and participate in the ongoing evaluation of AI initiatives where we work. We can help define the use cases for AI and anticipate future application. We can help determine what aspects of care can be handled by AI directly versus you know, which aspects should be handled by clinicians who receive advice from AI or, you know, there are just some things that AI shouldn't be a part of and should be handled directly by the healthcare provider. They can assist in validating the AI that's being proposed for use within their organizations and help evaluate it for accuracy and interpretability. Alan, extending what Eileen just said, what are you doing within your organization related to artificial intelligence today? So I want to comment sort of from two perspectives. Um, first of all, one is the clinical perspective. And what I want to sort of uh, piggyback onto what Eileen said, the, of the importance of clinicians getting involved 
And mostly what you need to do is just express a desire to participate because there's so much uh, of this going on in many organ in most organizations. And so uh, if you express an opportunity to want to get involved, usually you'll find uh, opportunities to participate. And I would encourage everyone to do that. Now, in the editing world where I'm working with information to be used at the point of care, one of the big challenges that we have is someone, come, you know, it doesn't have a lot of time. They come to a, a database, a website to look up some clinical information. And how do we get that information in front of them as quickly as possible? And broadly speaking, this comes down to how does our database get searched? How does the user access that information in a way that's natural to them? And then we need some kind of program that will search our database and try and serve up the most relevant information for them as quickly as possible. And we are in the process of using a variety of machine learning techniques to try and optimize this search function so that that information can be retrieved quickly. Uh, but that's probably the area that I'm focused on uh, the greatest amount right now, which is how do you find the information that's out there and get it in front of the clinician uh, at the point of care in a in hopefully as few clicks as possible, as rapidly as possible, so that they can get back to doing what they get paid to do, which is take care of patients. This has been a really fascinating discussion. I, I really want to thank the three of you for coming together and speaking to our audience about artificial intelligence to provide better care and in an and enhance that decision-making that, that's happening at the time that the physician's right in front of the patient, as well as research, as well as collaboration between physician and pharmacist. This is important. And the continuing advancement of artificial intelligence for our providers is going to be critical in leveraging the mounds and mammoth amounts of information and data that are out there at the fingertips of our, of our clinicians. And I want to give a, uh, a, a thank you to um, IBM Watson Health for um, sponsoring um, this podcast series, as well as bringing this intelligence and this information to our listeners. 82,000 listeners out there that are having an opportunity to learn from the three of you today. So Alan, Eileen, and Rick, thank you so much for participating today. Thank you very much, Todd. Thanks for having us. You were listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Nation. We were talking with Alan, with Eileen, and Rick regarding providing better care and enhanced decision-making with evidence and with artificial intelligence. And we thank you for listening.